We're also called to run a race. It's called the race of faith. And the track we run on is that narrow road that leads to life that Jesus talked about. So there's two roads in life. There's a broad road and there's a narrow road. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. Well, we're all on that narrow road the moment we got saved and we're running a race. Now, we've been on the race for five weeks. I really am finishing today. But I had to finish up chapter 12 because the whole chapter is about, most of it's about the race. And I want to talk to you about the importance of standing up and moving forward. And I want to also share with you three landmines that we're to be careful of in the race of faith that he mentions in chapter 12. So let's uh, read some passages, then we're going to pray. Here's Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. So take a new grip, and I just lost it. There we go. Take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame, that's talking about within you, not outside of you, but that which in you has gotten weak and lame will not fall, but become strong. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. For without, or or watch out, that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless, and another word for godless is profane, like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. And I pray that you will instruct and train everyone in this room, all watching by video and all listening by radio, to run a race, the the race, the race of faith well, that we would finish strong and break that tape in victory, that we will all hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll make you ruler over much. Enter the joy of your Lord. Now, would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, help me to run the race of faith successfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you're going to make it, whether you believe it or not. Amen. Now, we got to remember that the, the, the letter to the Hebrew Christians here, these people, the Hebrew Christians, were in the hot and the wilting fires of persecution. They were experiencing the red-hot heat of paying a price for walking with Jesus. I was telling the first service, the, the writer of the Hebrews lets us know they hadn't yet shed blood. They hadn't experienced martyrdom yet. They later would. But at the time of this letter, they had not experienced spilling their own blood for their confession. And I told the early service, I said, look, Most of us in here have never really been severely persecuted, but I want to tell you the way America is going right now, uh, I'm sharing these kinds of messages because more and more and more, the heat 
is being turned up on those who name the name of Christ. The Bible says those who live godly in Christ Jesus will, not maybe, not perhaps, not, not, uh, it's not an if, it's when you suffer persecution. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So what he writes to these Hebrew Christians, it's to us. We need to remember these things. So the writer is telling them, look, I know that you're down. I know you're discouraged. I know you're weary, but I want you to get back up on your feet. I want you to get a spine. I don't want you to let what you've gone through knock you out of the race and put you in the bleachers. I want you to remain in the race. Because, folks, there are spectators and there are participators, but let me tell you the truth about Christianity. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Christianity is for participators. And everybody who names the name of Christ is called to participate in the race of faith. Where every day we wake up and we say, Lord, today I'm walking with you. I'm swimming upstream against the course and the ways of this world. I'm going to deny the flesh. I'm going to deny the world and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to crucify myself and deny myself and choose your will over mine. I am running the race of faith. I'm looking not at things that are seen, but things that are not seen. I am focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And Lord, I'm going to run this race down the narrow road of life, even though it's narrow and even though it's constricting, it leads to life, it leads to blessing, it leads to peace, it leads to every good thing. So, he begins the next part of Hebrews with a therefore. And I always tell you here at this church that when you see a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. A therefore is a connective from one thought to another. When you see therefore, he's wanting to, to, uh, for you to remember what came before it so that you can connect it with what he's about to say. So he says, therefore, therefore, since suffering is going to lead to blessing for the believer, which is what we shared last week. That all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We read that, that suffering, even suffering persecution, he's going to make it work for our good. It brings discipline into our lives. It causes us to be partakers of his holiness. I hate to say it, but suffering causes us to grow spiritually at an accelerated rate. So therefore, he says, in light of the beneficial results of suffering, put aside all fear and put aside all faint-heartedness. And, and he illustrates faint-heartedness by drooping hands and shaking knees. These people were all shook up. They were shook up from persecution. They were down. They were discouraged. They were weary. They had had it. They were fainting. He says, I don't want you to be faint-hearted. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to mark out for yourself a path of obedience and a path of holiness. That's what I'm calling you to do. Now, more on that in just a little bit. In verse 13, he tells them that those things that have become weak or lame. Now, that means these people have been damaged some. They were hurt on the inside. On the inside of them, there, there, there was some pain. There were some wounds. There, there was some drooping, some wilting on the inside. 
Lameness, actually, which means out of joint. Some things were out of joint. Been knocked out of joint by persecution, by tough times. Some of you in here today know exactly what I'm talking about because there is something inside of you out of joint because of what you've been through. It's out of joint and you know it. You're not walking right, you're walking with a limp. You limped in here today. You got up limping. You went through your life yesterday limping. You go to bed limping. There's something inside of you that is limping, that is out of joint, that has happened. You've been hurt. And he says, if you make a straight path for your feet, if you decide, I'm going to walk with God, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to give my life to Jesus completely and wholeheartedly, unreservedly to him, I'm going to do that. He says, he says if you walk down that narrow path that leads to life and walk with Jesus, he said, that lame thing in you is going to be healed. What has been put out of joint is going to be made right by just living a straight life. You know, I believe in straight Amen? Amen. One commentator writes, I had to read this because it was such a good quote. He writes this about this verse. He said, let the paths you walk in be straight. For crooked and uneven paths will make the limbs which are lame more helpless still. If nothing aggravates the hurt you have received, it may soon be healed. Boy, I love that. Let me just put it real simple for you. Clean living is good for the soul. Clean living is good for the soul. He said, there's something broken in you. There's something out of joint. There's something wounded. There's something hurting. There's something lame. He says, let me give you what you do. First thing you do, get totally right with God and walk down that narrow road that leads to life. And as you're walking along, that which is lame will be healed by the Holy Spirit. So you won't wake up bleeding and hurting and limping anymore. That's good news. You can give the Lord a hand of praise for that. That's good news. Now, in verse 14, he says, listen, I want to encourage you to live in peace with as many people as possible. How many of you have realized that not everybody wants to live in peace? Don't look at your spouse. Look up at me. I'm just kidding. How many of you have realized that there are some people that really don't want to make things right? So he says, as much as lies within you, as much as lies within your power, be a peacemaker And walk in peace with as many people as you possibly can. But never, he makes the point, never at the expense of your own holiness. The Christian, he says, should never trade personal holiness for worldly acceptance. Listen, the most important thing in our life today is our walk with God. It's not our job. It's not our income. It's not what college degree we have. It's not who we marry. The most important thing in all of life is our walk with God. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is absolutely encapsulated and summarized in the person of Jesus Christ. So seek ye first Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And so he says, he says, never give up that walk of personal holiness with Jesus for worldly acceptance. Can I tell you today, I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care what the world thinks. To the world, you're a hero one day, a zero the next. They're patting you on the back one day, stabbing you in the back the next. I don't care what the world thinks, but I do care what he thinks. I want his smile. And if I wake up in the morning and I don't have his smile, boy, I get it right as fast as I can.
Now, in the next few verses, the writer of Hebrews points out three landmines in the racetrack of faith, the race of faith that we're to watch out for. And before we look at them, I'm going to just real quickly summarize what we have covered in this series that today makes six weeks. If we're going to break the tape at the finish line with a testimony of having run a strong race to the finish, or we can say with Paul, I fought a good fight. I finished my race. I kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness the Lord will give to those who look forward to his appearing on that day. So if we're going to run that successful race, here's what Hebrews 12 has told us. We're going to have to lay aside unnecessary weights. That was the first message. Lay aside unnecessary cares and worries God has not called you to carry. Then we're to forsake besetting sins, the sins that we're so easily inclined to. He says, and I want you to remember, you're going to have to run this race with patience. You're not going to get from A to Z overnight. I want you to run with endurance. You're going to have to have mental and spiritual toughness to finish this race. Somebody said, a rhinoceros skin and a soft heart. That's what every Christian needs. A rhinoceros hide and soft heart. Then he said, I want you to keep your focus on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, that's the way you run this race. Focused on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is right now set at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he said, also, not just look at him, but consider him. When you're going through a tough time, consider Jesus. What did he go through? He said, if you'll consider Jesus, it'll make what you're going through a lot easier. And then remember that trials work out for your good, Hebrews 12 tells us. Uh, get back up when you get knocked down. If you get knocked down, it's not that you got knocked down. We want to know, are you going to get back up? And thank God, you know what? Right when you say, I can't take another step and I think this is it for me, isn't it true that all of a sudden a power and a strength comes out of nowhere and stands you on your feet? And right when you thought you were done... You find that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you're standing on your feet again. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times, but he every time gets up again. Amen. So those are the things we're to remember. Now I want to deal with the landmines. He said, as I'm closing this talk about the race, let me remind you there are some traps along the way. There are landmines I want to warn you to avoid. And I picked out three. And I'm going to go over these three with you as we finish this message, this series on the race. Because these landmines are so common, every one of us deals with them. So let me deal with them one at a time. The first landmine he warns about is the root of bitterness. The root of bitterness. He said, looking carefully. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many others become defiled. I have pastored now about 32 years. I can't believe that when I say it, but I have. 
And you know what? I can tell you honestly, having watched the church, the underbelly of the church, good and bad and the ugly of the church, and walked with Christians and ministered to Christians for a very, very long time, I'm going to tell you, Satan has a favorite tool. And I believe the tool I'm about to talk about is his most successful weapon. For Satan, it's the weapon that keeps on giving. And here it is, this whole thing of the root of bitterness. Few things can sabotage your race of faith like bitterness. Bitterness will sideline you quicker than anything. Bitterness will take you out of the race quicker than any single thing. Bitterness will rob your peace, steal your joy, dry up your spiritual life. It'll cut you off from God. It'll stop up all the blessings of God, and it will leave you dry, brittle, bitter, and angry. I've seen people walk their whole lives in a bitter spirit because of something that happened way back when that they couldn't get rid of. They couldn't forget. They couldn't forgive. Bitterness starts with an offense or a hurt. That's how it begins. Someone says something, someone does something, and you didn't see it coming. You know, the devil doesn't send you a telegram two weeks before. I'm sending something that's going to offend you. But guess what, folks? Because we live with people all the time, we're going to be offended. There's not a person in here who's going to avoid, avoid being offended probably before the end of next week. Because we live in a devil-infested, sin-infected world, we cannot escape being offended. Jesus said it's inevitable that offense would come. That's what he said. We're all going to be offended. But the question is not that you're offended, but what did you do? with the offense, because this is something that can stop you in the race of faith. It can put you on the sidelines in the bleachers for the rest of your life. Someone says something or does something, it offends you. The word for offense, the Greek word is scandalon, and that is such a telling word, scandalon. I like to put it this way. Scandalon means there is a scandal going on inside of you. Here, scandalon. You have been scandalized, you've been hurt. Something has offended you. And now there's a scandal going on inside of you. It means that something made you trip in your walk. Uh, an offense comes out of nowhere. Somebody says something, you didn't see it coming. Or they do something and you didn't see it coming. And all of a sudden, you trip. You trip because of what it does to you emotionally. Your emotions begin to rage. You are filled with emotions that are not godly. And they rush in on you like a tsunami because you have been offended. At first you're hurt, but then the hurt grows into anger and you begin the oh-so-familiar path of offense. Now let me tell you what the path is quickly. First, you nurse it. That means you coddle it. That means I've got a right to be offended. They were wrong and I'm right and I'm just going to nurture this little baby. I'm hurt, I'm offended, so I'm going to nurture it. And we coddle it. Nurse it. You nurse it by holding on to it and not letting go of it, which is what we ought to do as fast as we can. But we nurse it. And then when you nurse it and you're coddling it, you rehearse it. Rehearsing it means you, are, you have got on a continual loop in your brain what was said or what was done. It's looping. It is on repeat. It is on replay. 
and you replay the event over and over and over again. That what they said, what they did, how could they have done that? Boy, I remember that time. And you know what? It is the most real thing to you in your entire life, that offense. It eats up, devours up, gobbles up everything else. It's bigger than everything else. What was done to you? You wake up with it, you go to bed with it, you go all day long looping it. How dare they? How could they? I'm so hurt. And it's real. I'm not making fun. I know it's real. But you rehearse it. And then you know what you do when you rehearse it after you've nursed it and you rehearse it long enough? You are always going to disperse it. And that's how many become defiled. Because you are not going to be with anyone without talking about what was done to you. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can get with an offended person for five minutes. And if you spend five minutes with them, it's going to come up. It's going to regurgitate up. And they're going to say, let me tell you what happened to me. And you know what? They become identified not by Jesus, but by the hurt. You see them coming. You go, oh, I'm going to hear it again. Here we go again. I'm going to hear it again. And they'll tell you like it happened yesterday. It might have been five years ago, ten years ago, but to them it's like it happened yesterday because it's never been dealt with. And see, if you get to the point where you've nursed it and rehearsed it and now you're dispersing it, there is a root. The root is put down in our soul when we rehearse it over and over again. It burrows a root down into our spirit. And now that offense is a part of us. What my ex did to me, what that boss did to me, what that person did to me, what that neighbor did to me, what that so-called best friend did to me. The Bible warns that this is a trap. It's a landmine in the race of faith to be avoided. And, and, you know, it can happen in a church. It's amazing how it happens in a church. See, when we disperse it, here's what we're doing. We want people on our side. So let's say it happens in a church. And you've got the offender. Let's say the offender is sitting over here. Don't get paranoid. I'm not doing anything. This is not a Freudian slip. I'm just saying, let's say the offender's over here. And over here, you've got a cluster of 10 or 20 people who the offended has talked to. And now you've got 10 or 20 people who are on their side. They're as mad as they are, hurt as they are. And they think that the one over here deserves a lightning bolt from heaven. And when I get up here to preach or the song leader gets up here to lead worship, we see 10 or 20 eyeballs over here shooting darts at somebody over here. And the church becomes known not for Jesus, but for the offended people in it. And all the devil loves it. The devil majors on it because his Goal is to conquer and divide, divide and conquer. So that's what he does, and it happens by offense. The Bible says if you're going to get over an offense, then you need to forgive quickly so the root of bitterness can't burrow down into the soil of your soul. So can you say with me, I must forgive quickly? You may say, well, Jeff, they don't deserve my forgiveness. I'm right, they're wrong. They really did do me wrong. You know what? You may be right. They may not deserve your forgiveness. But you're not blessing them by forgiving them. You're blessing you. Come on. 
I, uh, there have been many, many times I had to forgive so I could go on in God. I didn't forgive because I wanted to love all over them. I forgave to set myself free. So we got to be wise as a serpent, gentle as a dove. And when we get offended, forgive quickly before the loop starts and before you're majoring on that offense and before it becomes all that you're about and engulfs you and gobbles you up where that is who you are instead of Jesus being who you are. Watch out. The Bible says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How many of you can say, Jesus forgave me trillions of dollars of sin debt? Let me see. You know what? There's nothing that anybody could ever do to you that equals what we did to him. So he says, as God in Christ forgave you, quickly, quickly, don't let the sun go down on your anger, forgive others what they did to you. Nobody was stronger on this than Jesus who said, if you don't forgive others, their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That couldn't be any stronger. So let's say together, forgive quickly, forgive truly, and forgive permanently. Amen. Do it. Don't allow, don't allow an offense to take you out of the race. Now there's a second landmine. And it's going to be so quiet in here right now, you could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet. But I'm going to tell you what he said. He said the second landmine you've got to watch out for is sexual sin. Listen to what verse 16 says. Lest there be any fornicator. Lest there be any fornicator. Who's he talking to? People in the race. Lest there be any fornicator. Now let me tell you the truth about sexual sin today. Just as damaging to the soul as bitterness is sexual sin. As a matter of fact, sexual sin, and let me define it, is sexual activity with another person outside of marriage. Let me, let me go back and read that again. Sexual sin is sexual activity with another person outside of marriage. Or sexual activity with someone other than your spouse. Listen to what Paul wrote. He said, don't be immoral in matters of sex. That's the New Living Translation. Don't be immoral in matters of sex. Watch this. That is a sin against your own body in a way that no other sin is. So do you hear what that's saying? Sexual sin is uniquely destructive and damaging. That's what he says. Just recently a movie came out. You'd have to live on the dark side of Mars to have not heard this title, so I'm going to go ahead and say it in church, Fifty Shades of Grey. It's breaking all box office records. It's going all over not only the nation but the world. And you know that it's such an exceedingly damaging movie because it places its seal of approval on violence against women and on men treating women as objects to be abused. That's what it's teaching. There is a gigantic message in that movie. I, I was driving home this week and I was listening to a talk show and the host was taking calls about this movie and a woman came out and said, well, I just don't think there's anything wrong. It's totally innocent. Come on. People can do what they want in the privacy of their own bedroom. And I thought, what an example of how we have been dumbed down in this culture. Because the whole movie is about abusing another person violently in a sexual context. Let me tell you the truth about culture, society, 
When a society is in moral decline, it must turn, always will turn, to more deviant practices to get its thrills because the old ones won't do it anymore. So you got to go deeper and deeper and more and more perverse. A society that is spiraling down morally always starts by defining deviancy down. Have you noticed that what used to be deviant isn't deviant anymore? What used to be perverse is not perverse anymore? Even 30 years ago, things that our culture considered perverse are no longer perverse. You know why? We're not in an enlightenment. We are in defining deviancy down. We're being dumbed down. And America seems to be in a race to see how fast it can destroy God's standards for morality. And we're going to pay for it. Let me make a prophecy to you today. There is no way you can sell out to sin like America is doing now and throw God's word out and throw his values out and his standards out and embrace what is wrong and call it right and call what is right wrong without paying a huge price down the road. And that price is coming. I want you to trust me on something Many tears around the entire world are going to be shed as the result of the consequences of this movie's depraved idea of love as the consequences begin to roll in. Now, I have a suggestion. Instead of Fifty Shades of Grey, let me give you another title. How about Fifty Shades of Nay? You know what nay means? It means no. Like if I ask you in in, in King James times, if I said, hey, uh, did you have a great day? Nay. So 50 shades of nay, 50 shades of no. Let me give you 50, not 50, but several reasons to say no to sexual immorality of every shade and kind. How many of you have realized that no matter what people or cultures say, God's word is always true? It's always true. And you know what? It doesn't change for societies. It doesn't bend, bow, break, or back down. It is not edited and re-edited and redone to satisfy cultures. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago. God's word doesn't change because truth doesn't change. So here's a few of the nays or the reasons for saying no to sexual sin. Sexual sin is particularly and uniquely damaging and destructive. And I want you to remember that because that's what the Bible says. Because our sexuality is tied into the deepest part of who and what we are. It corrodes genuine intimacy because of guilt. See, you think, you think, well, being sexually involved is going to get us intimate. No, no, no. That's not how you get intimate. I'm going to tell you how to get intimate in just a minute. It separates us from God every time. It's like battery acid to a healthy self-image. Ask a woman who has allowed herself to be taken advantage of or used or abused. Ask her how she feels about herself. If they could tell the truth, they would say, frankly, I feel used. I feel taken advantage of. I feel like damaged goods. Sexual sin never makes you feel better about yourself. It breaks down the family unit. It brings unwanted little boys and girls into the world if they're fortunate enough to avoid the abortion mill. And it unleashes destructive and debilitating diseases upon your body. 
Hence, Paul says, it's a sin against your own body. Do you know that when the sexual revolution began in the 1960s, there were two venereal diseases in America? And now, one generation later, after everybody said, oh, throw off the shackles of all that archaic Victorian Bible stuff. Don't listen to the church. Get out there and be free. One generation later, it went from two venereal diseases to 33 last time I read. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You cannot go against God and not pay a price. And our culture is paying a heavy price and yet still decides to blind its eyes. Hebrews says, watch out for the landmine of sexual sin. Now, let me give you a couple of suggestions that might help you to avoid it. If you're dating, if you're single and you're out there and you're, you're on the market, so to speak, and uh, you're not, okay, so, so you, you're looking for a possible life mate. Let me give you some suggestions to avoid sexual sin. First, don't date anybody you wouldn't consider marrying. Why waste your time? Amen, Amen Pastor Jeff. Preach it. This is good stuff. There are messages I have to amen myself. Now, second, tell the person you're dating right up front what your convictions about moral purity are. Tell them right up front. You may find out right then and there they weren't for you as they race for the nearest exit door. This is free. I'm saving you thousands in counseling right here. Third, minimize touch and maximize talk. You don't get to know somebody by touch. But by talk, by listening to them, by learning their character, sharing your faith, your dreams, your hopes, your goals, your aspirations. That's how you get to know somebody. You don't get to know somebody physically first, then their soul later. That's backward. That's not God's way. God's way is first. I want to get to know you. I want to know if you've got a temper. I want to know if you really love Jesus. I want to know how you do with your money. Lastly, never fall for the line, if you love me, you would let me. Listen, love will wait. uh, Lust never will. Listen to what it says about Jacob. Jacob worked for seven years to gain the hand of Rachel in marriage. And it says in the Bible, quote, they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Did you hear that? Seven years seemed like a few days to him. He loved her so much. So say with me, love waits and lust never will. So we're to beware of bitterness, and we're to beware of sexual sin. There's one last one, and you'd have never thought of this one, but here it is. We're to beware of being profane. We're to beware of being profane. They say, well, what does profane mean? It's very simple. Profane means take lightly the things of God. You take it lightly. You don't take the things of God seriously. You don't treasure them. He says, beware. He said, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. So it says Esau was profane. Now, you know the story of Esau and Jacob. Let me just give you a quick summary of it. Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was born first. As he was being born, baby Jacob, right behind him, reached up and grabbed his heel. And so Jacob means trickster. Really, con artist. He reached out and grabbed his heel and it was prophetic and indicative of what would happen in the future that Jacob would always be sort of grabbing Esau by the heel and doing him wrong. And we know that Esau was, was 
redheaded and ruddy and so hairy, he was almost like an animal. Jacob was smooth skinned and liked sitting in the tent playing video games. That's the way he was. Esau liked being out in the field hunting. He was an outdoorsman. Jacob was an indoorsman. All right? So one day, and don't forget, Esau was firstborn, so that means he had all the rights of the firstborn. He was going to get most of the money, most of the blessing, most of the privileges because he was firstborn. Jacob wanted that. So Jacob waited for the right moment. And one day Esau came in from the field. He was tired. He was weary. He was starving. And Jacob had made up a great, big, hot, steaming bowl of wolf brand chili. Just want to keep you with me. He had made stew. And here comes Esau out of the field. And Jacob walks up to him and goes, Esau said, oh, man, you read my mind. And Jacob said, it's yours. If, hold on, if. There's only one thing I want. What do you want? I want your birthright. Give me your birthright. The rights of the firstborn. Just give me that. That's that's all I want. And the Bible says, Esau despised, that word despised means took lightly his birthright. And he said, sure, hey, no big deal. Have it. Have the birthright. Just give me that stew. And the Bible says afterwards he regretted it, tried to repent, tried to get it all back, couldn't get it back. It was a done deal in the eyes of God. Now here's the deal. Here's what we're being told in the race of faith. Don't ever take lightly the blessing the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ, where you would trade it away for anything from this world. Watch it. The profane person is somebody who easily casts away their spiritual walk for indulgence and temporary pleasure. As Esau gave up everything for a bowl of stew. The profane person doesn't treasure what they have in Jesus Christ. They don't think twice about trading it away for cheap, temporary, earthly things. They just trade it away. Say, And, and listen, folks, here's, here's my, my point with this last one. The, the world's full of Jacobs. The devil is a Jacob. The devil will come to you and to me at key moments in our life, usually right before a promotion or a breakthrough, and he will come to us with a bowl of stew. It will look good, smell good, feel good, seem good. But it will always uniquely appeal to our carnal nature. And it will be a choice. Am I going to trade away what I have in God and my inheritance and my future and my destiny? Am I going to trade it away for this bowl of porridge? A person, a place, a thing, it doesn't matter. Am I going to trade it away? Am I going to take the blessing of God so lightly that, oh, yeah, 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 I'll give that up for this? The successful runner in the race of faith will hold close to his heart the grace he's received and will refuse to trade it away for earthly things. Jesus said, what you've got, I'm going to liken it to a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price. You can't put a price tag on your salvation by grace, through faith, and all of the inherited blessings that come with it. It's, there's nothing worth trading it for. Can I have an amen here today? There's nothing worth trading it for. 
So we hang on to it. We say, I'm going to hold the kingdom of God and my calling and my Savior and my love with him and my walk with him. I'm going to hold it close and nothing this world has to offer me is worth the trade. Can we stand together today? Say with me, beware of bitterness. Beware of immorality. And beware of being profane. Of course, profanity comes from profane. You get involved in profanity, take God's name in vain. You're just saying, I take God lightly. Kathy and I were watching a TV show recently. And my Lord, they were just GD this and GD that. I said, Kathy, I can't do this. How profane it was. How disrespectful. I said, we can't watch this anymore. There it was. And it was normal TV. We've been dumbed down, church. But not the church of Jesus Christ whose mind is being renewed. Can we go to him with our hands lifted up? And let's say together, Lord, I'm in a race. Help me to run well. To avoid that root of bitterness. To avoid profaneness. To avoid immorality. And only by your grace and help can I do it. And you know that's true, don't you? Can we just say, Lord, I walk by grace. Oh, God, we walk by grace in the name of Jesus. Now, with your heads bowed, I want to pray with you today. If you've drifted away from the Lord or if you don't know the Lord, listen carefully, friend. I I love you. I'm not here to condemn anybody. And I hope you know this message was not to condemn or point fingers I just so want to see all of us together run a good race. So this has been warnings in love from the Bible of what can trip you up in your race. But today, some of you have drifted. And I want to pray with you today. You can come home. You can get right with God. I wouldn't get on the highway if I didn't know I wasn't right with God or where I really ought to be. If you've made a little trade and you know that it was a mistake and you've traded what you used to have with God for something else, you can, listen, the good news is you can get forgiveness today and go back to the real thing and give up what you traded for. If you say, Pastor Jeff, I've, I've drifted, but even you saying this is a confirmation to me that I need to come home to him and fully yield to him. Would you raise your hands today? I want to see you. God bless you all over this place, many of you. And there may be one person who can say, you know, I'm not sure I've ever been saved. I want you to forget about every person in this room. There is no one here but you, me, and God. I want you to think, is there a question mark in your mind about whether or not you're a Christian? You've been born again. You know Jesus personally. Or when your head hits the pillow at night, in the back of your mind, there's a question. I wonder, I wonder, have I ever really? You can settle that question right now. And I want to pray with you. Say, Pastor Jeff, that's me. Raise your hand, would you? Just raise it. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. He loved you and does love you. Raise it high where I can see you. God bless you, several of you, several of you. I want you to do something Listen carefully to me. Forget about everybody here. I want you 
to slip out and come and stand in front of me right now. Just come stand right here. I want to pray with you right here. The minute you take a step, it's a step of faith, and you're going to begin to get touched by God. After the first step, it's a step of faith. I want you to slip out and come. Just come and stand. Your hand was raised. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. He walked up Golgotha's hill naked and bleeding for you. We can come down and say, I need Jesus. So as we sing, I want you to come. And we're going to stand right here and we're going to pray together in Jesus' name. Let's sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And you come as we're singing. We're only going to sing through it once. And then we're going to pray. Thank you, Lord. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Some of you raise your hand. You need to come and stand. Nobody is going to care. Nobody is going to care. You need to settle it today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.